Welcome to the second iteration of the Center for Ethics' undergraduate conference in the ethics. Before starting, we wish to acknowledge this land on which the University of Toronto operates. For thousands of years, it has been the traditional land of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and the Mississaugas of the Credit. Today, this meeting place is still home to many Indigenous peoples from across Turtle Island, and we are grateful to have the opportunity to work on this land. We have gathered today to consider the following question. How society shall heal in both a literal and a figurative sense in a post-pandemic landscape? Additionally, we will investigate questions such as what constitutes an ethical approach to resuming activities given the health and access-based inequities brought by the pandemic? What is the place of reconciliation in quotidian life at a personal level and at a larger policy level? In light of these questions, we have selected diverse projects that focus either on the pandemic directly or concern the themes of reconciliation, community building, and overcoming adversity. Without further ado, we will begin panel one, evaluating fairness in the community. Specifically, we will begin with Anna Brinkerhoff's project titled an enforced policy in Ontario's long-term care homes, unequal access in public and private health care in a pandemic. Anna Brinkenhoff, pronounced she and her, um, is the first fourth year undergraduate student graduating in political science and sociology. Anna's research interests lie at the crossroads of her two disciplines, particularly in the social impacts of failures of democracy. Her current research examines senior residents in long-term care homes during the COVID-19 pandemic and considers how the state's failure to intervene harmed the lives of many residents. Anna hopes to expand her research interests at the graduate level in the future. So thank you all so much for coming today and thank you to my fellow presenters. I'm really looking forward to learning all about your research. Um, so today I'm going to be discussing my senior thesis project completed for um, Paul 499. Um, my project is titled Unenforced Policy in Ontario's Long-Term Care Homes, Unequal Access in Public and Private Healthcare in a Pandemic. So my research looks at the concept of unenforced policy um, in the context of the recent COVID-19 pandemic and analyzes the different factors contributing to the extremely high death rates in the long-term care homes in Ontario. In today's presentation, I'm going to be discussing briefly the definition of unenforced policy, my specific case study and its key findings, as well as possible directions for future research. So what is unenforced policy? My project considers the phenomenon of unenforced policy to occur when a governing body enacts a piece of legislation, such as a statute or a bill, but simply fails to enforce it. Immediately during the first stage of my research, I came across a gap in policymaking literature. Um, many works in policymaking only consider either the initial stages of policymaking, such as the drafting of policies or the intermediary stages of implementing policies. Many of these works try to evaluate the effectiveness of policies and answer questions about if governments ultimately deliver on their campaign and policy promises. However, no works consider, at least in the context of liberal democracies, the enforcement side of policies. I found the gap in the literature interesting as it points to a key part in evaluating the extent to which policies are effective. If governments do not enforce policies, 
how can these policies produce their intended outcomes? So in sum, my research attempts to answer the question, why do liberal democracies pass policies, but not regulate them or ensure their enforcement and therefore the their fulfillment? So to answer this question, um, my research considers the case of Ontario and more specifically, um, its policies that the provincial government passed, which govern um, the operations of long-term care homes. During the COVID-19 pandemic, the Ontario government failed to enforce two key policies relating to long-term care homes operations. Specifically, the Long-Term Care Home Act 2007 and the Infection Prevention and Protection Policies called IPAC, which work to protect the vulnerable residents of long-term care homes, um, and particularly with preventing the spread of COVID-19. However, the provincial government did not enforce certain sections of both of these pieces of legislation. The case of Ontario presents an interesting opportunity for study because the province reported the highest percentage of death rates in long-term care homes relative to other Canadian provinces. The non-enforcement of these two policies produced an environment in which 75% of all provincial COVID-19 related deaths occurred from residents and staff in long-term care. In addition, death rates remained so high that the federal government deployed the Canadian Armed Forces to assist in administering medical aid to these homes. For these reasons, the case of Ontario presented a compelling opportunity for studying the broader topic of unenforced policy. So the case of Ontario is also of particular salience because of case specific factors. Specifically, the vulnerability of the resident population points to the importance of the policies in protecting senior residents. However, the government's failure to enforce the policies also harmed these residents. This question begs, sorry, this begs questions about the province's effectiveness at protecting vulnerable populations. In addition, this case occurred during an exogenous shock being the COVID-19 pandemic. Does this case present an opportunity to study new forms of policy responses or do these crises and exogenous shocks reveal already existing policy failures? The literature is divided on the benefits of studying policies during times of instability, and this case contributes to that debate. Finally, in Ontario, the majority of deaths occurred in private homes. Many reports surfaced about the particular brutality of care given to residents in private homes. This disparity between public and private care is consistent across literature. How do private firms impact this particular case and its outcomes of unenforced policy? So, my research revealed three key causes of this case of unenforced policy. The first being the legacy of the privatization of homes in Ontario. In particular, I found that relative to public homes, private homes consistently gave poor quality of care and also exploited workers with poor working conditions. The empirical evidence points to the motivation of for-profit homes to reduce operating costs and maximize their profits which includes cutting corners in care and ultimately not enforcing provincial legislation. This was most evident in the higher rates of death in for-profit homes compared to those in public homes. So in addition, the inconsistent state structure contributed to unenforced policy. Specifically, the state mechanisms that are necessary for enforcing policy were not functional. The Ministry of Long-Term Care, which governs long-term care home operations in Ontario, did not have enough staff and resources to properly audit homes, which is a key strategy that the ministry uses to enforce policy. In addition, many state entities 
um, have overlapping jurisdictions, meaning that policies are enforced to different extents because there is no coordinated oversight of the enforcement of these policies. Finally, some homes have legislated partnerships with public hospitals, which allows them to share research and knowledge of medical practices, but many homes are not properly integrated into the broader healthcare system, which allows them to not receive the same resources to help enforce policies and ultimately comply with legislation. And then finally, there was simply a lack of resources for the homes to both enforce and also carry out practices to properly comply with provincial legislation. If governments do not have the resources for homes to comply with legislation, then they can't enforce legislation. Particularly, a lack of staff, medical supplies, and human capital surrounding disease prevention points to on-the-ground causes of the non-enforcement of the two policies. Ultimately, these factors of privatization, poor state structure, and a lack of resources produced an environment in which the state could not enforce its policies and ensure the safety of its resident population. So future research in this area would do well to test and study the generalizability of the phenomenon of unenforced policy. I only used a singular case study approach and was not able to achieve generalizable results as the factors that influenced this instance of unenforced policy were uh, case specific. Thus, future research should test the generalizability of these mechanisms. And in addition, future studies may wish to consider the other mechanisms necessary to produce unenforced policy, perhaps not pertaining to privatization and healthcare, to understand what commonalities exist across different cases of unenforced policy. And that's the end of my presentation. So thank you so much to everyone. Next year, I'll be presenting the research she undertook as a fellow in ethics of AI at the Center for Ethics this academic year. Um, it is titled A Brave New Age of Damages and the Need for Independent and Reimagined Autonomous Vehicle Insurance. Cheryl is a recent graduate who double majored in political science and in American studies. She is also a visual studies artist who, whose work has appeared at venues such as Museum, OCADS, Ada Slate Gallery, Arts and Arts Etobicoke. Previously, as people uh, she mentioned, she was an undergraduate fellow in the ethics of AI, and she was exploring the moral implications of computerization. She is also a graduate fellow at the Center of Sir Cities, where she is producing a documentary to demonstrate the politics of community of resource access in Toronto's inner suburbs. Outside of class, she enjoys playing guitar, skiing, and walking her mom's dog, mom, mom's dog Hayden. So as, as mentioned, my name is Cheryl, and I am interested in the field of cyber policy and in car insurance and the opportunity to be a Center for Ethics Fellow has enabled me to dive really deep into an imagination of what auto insurance and this new age of automated vehicles will look like. And so I describe this age as a brave new age of damages. So scan progress has been made in the space of insurance for artificial intelligence. Especially alarming is the lack of insurance available exclusively for vehicles with the capacity for autonomous driving. Tesla, for instance, has enabled autopilot functionality since October 2015. That's seven years ago. And according to MIT's Lex Friedman, as of the first quarter of 2020, 
There are about 826,000 Tesla vehicles delivered with autopilot hardware. And so that's an estimate of 3.3 billion miles traveled using autopilot. So despite the rapid implementation of these increasingly autonomous vehicle navigation softwares, all cars still remain subject to the same types of auto insurance. In the absence of legislative pressure to expedite the provision of specialized insurance for AVs, auto manufacturers have stepped in to provide their own forms of coverage. So in 2015, Volvo was the first manufacturer to claim full responsibility for damages inflicted by their AVs, um, which was likely a decision that was made in anticipation of legal ramifications and public concerns. So although uh, Europe's Auto autonomous car legislation insists the automaker or its insurance writers under, uh, assume legal liability for accidents occurring while its vehicles operate in level three mode. Um, it, it's still kind of, we're, we're still in a very uh, nascent stage where no car on American or Canadian roads have yet reached level three. So Tesla's operate at level two and GM's super cruise feature, which is mostly enabled on highways, is at a level two plus. And so uh, the anticipation of monopolistic overreach of automakers should be checked by a third party. We shouldn't be leaving it up to these private firms whose interests are to maximize profits and to tend to shareholders to look out for the safety of the people on the road. Um, and as such, I argue that such a third party should hold interests aligned with consumer protections rather than automakers' agendas. And so, Third-party insurance providers are necessary to ensure the operators of autonomous vehicles are fairly covered for liability and insured against misuse of their data. Um, and so my thesis is as follows. Um, third-party insurance and only third-party insurance can be understood and expected to cover damages relating to physical accidents cover damages relating to accidents that are not physical, such as the um, leak of data or the unlawful manipulation of the car's software for faulty driving operations. And also lastly, for uh, kind of guaranteeing the autonomy of car operators and choosing how to operate their cars. And so, um, I. I much of much of the debate around AVs is stifled due to an undeniable understanding that, of course, we want to save human lives. And so it, with that respect, it's very difficult for people to raise concerns about AVs or the skepticism towards them when they're likely to be shut down as people who say value autonomy or culture over saving human lives. And so Traditionally, um, accidents by conventional cars are attributed to the driver, um, vehicle defect or malfunction, or an unavoidable natural condition. And all of these factors may be safe for the driver holding a new responsibility of maintaining the car rather than actively operating the car, uh, can still be liable for the malfunction of an AV, which I argue is why insurance is still such an important tenet and 
the car owner's life, even if the name of autonomous driving sort of denotes that the car can operate on itself and the auto manufacturer will take responsibility for the cars they put out on the road. The reality is we just cannot bet on that. So here I have a thought experiment. So say, say you have an AV and it's using these sensors to navigate the road and you just did a bad job of wiping down one of the car sensors and understandably the car your car is an older model and newer models have these new sensor wipers that clean down the sensors before they go on the road because the for instance Tesla knows that people like us are just not perfect at cleaning sensors all the time so you chose against paying for the wiper upgrade um, and as such your car hits a cyclist while making a turn because one of the sensors wasn't working well enough uh, who is responsible so in this case we have a few uh, parties that may be liable it may be argued that the car manufacturer is responsible for giving you this safety-based upgrade at no cost uh, for it is a technology that's available and would save lives but it could also be argued that in choosing to abstain from adopting this new wiper technology, you acknowledge your responsibility in maintaining the sensors uh, to a reasonable standard. And as such, you are the person who's um, responsible for hitting the cyclist. In either way, the cyclist has suffered damages and it's a concern of who will be the one paying the damages. And so I think this thought experiment goes to show how even in the age of AVs, we can't expect for ourselves as car operators to be totally absolved of responsibilities. Um, and one really good uh, precedent in history to show the uh, lack of benevolence by automakers would be Ralph Nader's investigation into the 1959 Corvair that had a rear, like when it turned, the rear would often jump, skip up from the road. And so there was this off-market camber compensator that was sold to keep the rear axle on the road um, when it was steering. And it was actually, GM did not did not acknowledge the safety concern of this car. Actually, the Corvair was marketed as a really fun and sporty car because of its inherent dangers. And it was only after selling, I believe it was after only sell, only after selling over about uh, 1.2 million cars. And after two years did GM uh, do these safety recalls to install this camber compensator that was uh, developed by GM at no cost. So um, this is to show how much inertia it takes uh, to implement change in the interest of consumer safety when we leave it up to the automakers. And so my second concern, which is which could be addressed by a third party insurance provider for autonomous vehicles, is how people's data, which is inherently valuable, would be protected. And so if we look back to the precedent of the Equifax data breach, when 147 million people have their personal information exposed, and that resulted in a $425 million payout. This not only goes to show that data is inherently valuable, so in the instance of a self-driving car, for instance, maybe data on the routes you take could suggest where you work or where you frequent and where you live. These are all really valuable points of data that should be kept private and should be disincentivized from 
or the value should decentivize automakers from overlooking safety um, hardware updates or software updates to keep them private. Um, but most importantly, when we look to the Equifax case, you will note that um, people like people who are affected are responsible for filing these claims to this law firm in Seattle that's responsible for handling the Equifax case to claim up to $25 an hour to for up to 20 hours. And I argue in the case of AVs, this process would be expedited should there be an insurance firm that does this process for you, that initiate that automatically initiates the process for you when they can sense or detect or track that there has been some sort of a data leak. And so um, I think insurance in this way could revolutionize the way in which people are um, more expeditiously paid back for data breaches, but um, can restore the trust of auto, auto um, operators in uh, the system to not really be fearful of when a data breach has struck because it'll be in the insurance provider's um, best interest to um, to observe it and to compensate you for it, for they do take a cut. And lastly, um, my last point concerns the autonomy of AV operators. And what I mean by this is there are a lot of um, speculators who feel that insurance for AVs is effective um, only if the AVs will cause damages as of right now. Um, it seems that the legislators are looking favorably upon the implementation of ABs for safety reasons, but it's not really fair to limit consumers' choices um, in the interest of absolute safety. What I mean by this is in having an independent insurance firm, uh, people can choose which insurance firms to adopt in the interest of their budgets and also what kinds of liabilities they want to be protected against. But I also argue that having a third party intervene and to provide as broad an array of insurance options as possible will um, kind of prevent the obsolescence of traditional vehicles and that people may drive for budget reasons or for reasons relating to culture and personal preferences. So in some insurance independent from the interests of auto companies is necessary to protect operators of autonomous vehicles. Specifically, auto insurance for AVs is effective only if they cover proportionate liability in cases of auto accidents, protecting from and compensating for unlawful collection, storage, or profit of personal data collected from AVs, and preserve the autonomy of AV operators by limiting the bounds of AI-based suggestions to allow for some degree of choice. The goodness of a future where AVs are made fully autonomous is tested not only by measuring rates of accidents. The trajectory of the auto industry has never been shaped by a strict consumer desire for maximal safety. This suggests the value of the car is greater than its ability to safely and efficiently transport passengers. Cars are public declarations of self-expression, objects of admirations and blockbusters, and sites of memory making for families and much more. So this suggests that insurance needs to protect AVs and their operators and that they ought to consider both the needs of both entities beyond and within the realm of vehicle and passenger safety. Thank you so much for tuning into my talk. Okay, so now we will commence onto panel two, which is titled Promoting Reconciliation and Inclusivity. 
Unfortunately, Michael Damone, whose research focused on public history, ethics, and reconciliation, has fallen ill and is unable to join us today. As such, we will move on to James Rouse's presentation titled, Gender Dysphoria Does Not Belong in the DSM. James Ralph, pronounced they them, is pursuing a philosophy major and a bioethics minor in co-op at the University of Toronto Scarborough. They are particularly interested in ethics and bioethics and have participated in the 2021 to 2022 Socrates project at UTSC in the bioethics stream. James hopes to use their education and bioethics to enable better healthcare for all, especially for queer people and other marginalized groups. In their free time, they enjoy reading, cooking, and being outdoors. Now I'll turn the stage over to James. Um, so I'm James Ralph, and today I will be presenting kind of just bits and pieces of a paper that I wrote this past academic year um, on gender dysphoria and the DSM. Uh, as I'll get into, I believe gender dysphoria should be taken out of the DSM and an alternative model for gender affirming care should be used. So uh, I'm just kind of going to go over what gender dysphoria is and how it's outlined in the DSM-5. Um, according to the DSM-5, gender dysphoria is a feeling of incongruence between one's assigned gender and the gender they feel they really are. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know, the DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association, which is widely used in North America to diagnose mental disorders and illnesses. Um, another criteria in the DSM for gender dysphoria is a desire for sex characteristics of the other gender, um, although the language of other assumes a gender binary, which isn't necessarily the case. Um, there are more symptoms of gender dysphoria than I have listed on the slide, of course, there's many, um, such as a strong desire to be treated as the other gender, but these two seem to be the most kind of pertinent and important for understanding the diagnosis. So the current widespread practice in North America um, for people to obtain gender affirming treatment is that physicians must provide a mental health assessment and diagnosis of gender dysphoria uh, again, for transgender patients to have access to gender-affirming treatment. The DSM says that gender dysphoria is not an illness or disorder, and that's what they kind of claim. Um, but to me, it kind of seems strange that they then include it in the DSM-5, um, which is the guide for illnesses and disorders. Uh, essentially, if being transgender is not an illness, it should follow that it's not included in any form in the DSM. So we've briefly gone over the current guidelines, which is that trans patients must be diagnosed with gender dysphoria before they're able to obtain treatment. And kind of going on to my proposal for an alternative model. Uh, my proposal is an informed consent model and the removal of gender dysphoria as a diagnosis from the DSM. So an informed consent model that provides, sorry, an informed consent model would provide uh, transgender people with proper care. Um, it doesn't and shouldn't require a referral or diagnosis by a mental health care professional. The informed consent model relies on the acting physician, so the physician who is giving the patient their actual gender affirming treatment um, to provide the patient with the details necessary to make an informed decision about treatment 
which leaves the ultimate decision of whether to proceed with treatment to be decided by the patient, unless, of course, they're found incompetent or to otherwise be unable to understand the goal of treatment. So my reason for this proposal is that the classification of gender dysphoria as a disorder can be really harmful and inaccurate. And having a mental health professional diagnose the so-called disorder um, is really just unnecessary. Uh, so I just want to mention a few important points about the informed consent model um, that I'm proposing. And the first one is competency is still a very essential part of the informed consent model. Uh, it will not and should not be possible for patients to obtain this treatment, gender-affirming treatment, um, if they aren't deemed competent to do so. And the second point I want to talk about is that the, ICE, the, the informed consent model respects the principle of autonomy to a greater degree, unlike the current, um, what I call the gatekeeping model. And the third point is just that the informed consent model would allow for more open and honest conversations between the patient and the physician, instead of uh, a transgender patient trying to convince a physician that they're trans enough or experience enough harm to warrant a gender dysphoria diagnosis, they'll be able to be more honest about the goal of treatment and why they're seeking treatment. The focus here changes from being about a diagnosis to being about the patient's actual symptoms and goals. And in considering why exactly gender dysphoria is not a disorder, um, I kind of started thinking about it as a bodily issue. So distress that an individual experiences when being perceived as their assigned gender, when that is not how they feel, um, stems from a bodily inaccuracy and maybe societal norms as well and not from a mental disorder. Um, at the very least, the distress that requires medical intervention is distress at the state of one's own body and not the distress of their mental state. Instead of looking at transgender people and patients as having any kind of disorder or illness, um, one should consider their distress as resulting from a bodily irregularity or inaccuracy. So to illustrate how gender dysphoria is and should be treated as a bodily issue, I'll introduce two uh, slightly different but similar scenarios of two women both seeking breast augmentation for different reasons. So scenario one is about Jane. Um, Jane is a 27-year-old breast cancer survivor and has had a double mastectomy to treat her cancer. Um, she's distressed at the state of her body after the mastectomy and opts to receive a breast augmentation to provide her from relief from this distress. Jane receives the augmentation with little to no resistance from her doctor and is pleased with the results. She feels as if he, she is herself now and is secure in her identity once more. And the second scenario is Charles. And Charles is a 27-year-old transgender woman and is attempting to start the process of receiving gender-affirming treatment to receive a breast augmentation because of the distress at the state of her own body. Um, Charles receives the breast augmentation, but not without some resistance from her doctor and through a thorough process of psychiatric evaluation. This evaluation confirms that she does in fact have gender dysphoria and she receives the augmentation. Afterwards, Charles is satisfied and feels like herself for the first time in her life. So I think with Jane, it was easily understandable to all involved that she was not mentally ill and she was not disordered. 
um, but rather that she wanted to feel secure in her identity again. Uh, with Charles, it was a bit different, uh, treated as a disorder of the mind, and treatment required a diagnosis by a mental health professional. Um, and I think this kind of illustrates how it is a bodily issue and how the current model that provides access to gender affirming care often assumes that transgender people, especially compared to cisgender people, don't know themselves well enough to make a decision that's so um, drastic. So homosexuality is kind of a similar case to uh, transgender and, and gender dysphoria, as currently gender dysphoria is viewed as pathological to some degree. And yeah, it's, it's analogous to how homosexual homosexuality or being in any way part of the LGB community used to be pathologized. Uh, homosexuality used to be included as a condition in the DSM. And in some ways, I think the progression of gender dysphoria as a diagnosis in the DSM-5 mirrors the diagnosis of homosexuality. So in the DSM-4, gender, dys gender dysphoria was called gender identity disorder and identified the incongruence of expressed and assigned gender as a disorder. Currently, the DSM-5 indicates that it's the stress associated with gender disorder, or sorry, gender dysphoria that the diagnosis refers to. Um, but I think it's just problematic to include gender dysphoria in the DSM at all, no matter how it's presented. Um, so homosexuality used to be in the, in, in the DSM, and because it's out now, I think the stigma has lessened a lot. Um, and I think the same sort of thing could happen with gender dysphoria. So this is just my last slide, kind of about moving forward. Um, what I'd like to see recognized is that all people, including trans people, have the best and most credible access to and knowledge of their own gender identities in ways that others, including medical professionals, do not. And I think that the informed consent model and a removal of gender dysphoria from the DSM is the best way of doing so. Um, so thanks so much for listening to my presentation. So finally, our conference is moving into its third and its final panel, which concerns the philosophy of human flourishing. Scholars familiar with Aristotle may recognize that the idea of the flourishing results from uh, the pursuit of his this freely and rationally chosen values and goals by people, or maybe readers of Eastern philosophy may see flourishing as the Confucian idea of collectivism, of living in a community that shares a commitment to ethical self-cultivation. And from all of that, um, we get flourishing in the end. However, um, today our speakers will be speaking more about the Western conception of flourishing, and we look forward to hearing about how, quote unquote, human flourishing is considered in a modern applied context, starting with Ariel's presentation titled Marriage and Modernity, focusing on a critique of state-recognized marriage. Ariel, pronounced she and her, is a recent graduate and research fellow at the Center for Ethics. She's passionate about her research in the history of philosophy, which focuses on the evolution of hermeneutics and the phenomenology within the philosophy of religion. During Ariel's undergraduate studies, she was the co-editor-in-chief of both U of T's Philosophy Undergraduate Journal and the Canadian National Philosophy Undergraduate Journal. Next year, she will start her PhD in philosophy at U of T and collaborate with the Center for Jewish Studies. 
When she is not working, you will find her at concerts or writing in her journal about her traveling adventures. Take it away, Ariel. The concept of marriage and liberty occupies a peculiar place in modern discourse. Relatively progressive thinkers like John Stuart Mill and Claudia Card argue that marital institutions are structurally and socially oppressive for women. On the other hand, we can appreciate that choosing who one marries is a significant liberty for some, especially for women and non-heterosexual couples who fought for a choice in the matter. If marriage can symbolize liberty and a shackle, depending on who you're asking, we might say that choosing to participate in marriage ought to be the individual's choice and of no interest to the state. That would be reasonable only if marriage served the religious or social function of edifying a romantic relationship, but it does not. Contrary to what you may assume based on popular culture, marrying for personal fulfillment was a post-Enlightenment development which became accessible to the middle class during the Industrial Revolution. For the majority of human history, marriage served the pragmatic function of bestowing legal entitlements and obligations to spouses and still does to this day. There are over 1,100 statutory provisions in which marital status is a factor in determining rights, benefits, and responsibilities. Privileges include tax-free transfer of property between spouses, immigration status, and residency in certain neighborhoods. Obviously, some of these privileges serve to protect the unity of families, but others do not. The bestowal of extraneous legal entitlements irrationally privileges married couples and prevents those who aren't married from receiving them, like two platonic best friends who care for one another but do not identify as a sexually monogamous couple. So my project considered the following question. According to what rationale should a liberal state legally recognize a particular relationship? First, I examined the deficiencies of marital institutions from a sociological and philosophical perspective. Then I examined a significant issue that justifies the legal regulation of interpersonal relationships, what, which are the increasing rates of family breakdown. Finally, in response to my primary question, I argue that the state is justified in formally recognizing committed relationships that promote long-term care, but they need not be married couples. To maintain a consistent analysis, I focused on how marriage is treated in Western liberal democracies as they tend to share similar legal systems and cultural values. More specifically, my starting point was Rawlsian liberalism, as many of the marriage critics that I engaged with, like Tamara Metz, Elizabeth Brake, and Claire Chambers, appealed to Rawls's notion that state action must be capable of public justification and the principle of liberal neutrality. We all agree that marital institutions violate liberal neutrality because marriage symbolizes a highly controversial, narrow, and fundamentally religious conception of the good life. Ultimately, the state has no business in whether functional caring relationships have a spiritual, romantic, or sexual dimension, so they should not be allocating legal entitlements based on this subjective ideal. Although I reject state-recognized marriage, I do not endorse the radical libertarian solution to abandon legally recognizing any form of adult relationship, and I also reject the proposal of enabling individuals to freely distribute the legal entitlements associated with marriage in a piecemeal fashion among a network of individuals. 
Both Chambers and Brake endorsed this view to varying degrees, particularly the network aspect and the freedom to distribute only particular entitlements across that network. I believe these types of solutions run the risk of failing to protect those who are the most vulnerable in intimate relationships like homemakers, especially ones without children. That is because through legally categorizing the significance of a relationship, those who are the most vulnerable automatically become entitled to a concrete bundle of rights. Also, if one member accuses another um, during a divorce settlement or like a breakup settlement of psychological abuse or financial manipulation, there's concrete evidence that they are in fact in a long-term and codependent relationship. Second, legally recognizing caring relationships does not violate liberal neutrality in the same way that marriage does, which I will speak about at the end. While I was interested in marriage reform arguments which prioritize personal freedom, I was simultaneously concerned with how marriage and family law address family breakdown. By this, I mean all events which we lead one partner to leave the home and any disputes resulting from this separation. During the pandemic, family breakdown became especially devastating as legal support became difficult to access and quarantine measures required family members to remain in close proximity. Prior, family breakdown was already a longstanding issue. In 2016, a British study reported that the ramifications of family breakdown cost the nation more than the national defense budget. The sources of these expenses include supporting children of single parents, legal protection, and mental health care. As well, family breakdown is devastating for children. Parental divorce is associated with an increased risk for a myriad of adjustment problems, including academic difficulties, illegal activity, and mental health disorders. Because the causes of family breakdown are complex, I focused on only one dimension of this phenomenon, that being the voluntarist relationship between adults, such as co-parents. In the current literature pertaining to the philosophy of marriage, my motivation is a conventional one, as a concern for child welfare is typically cited as a reason for defending marriage. I argue that we cannot conflate the protection of marital institutions with the protection of families. First, the evidence claiming that children of married couples do better on a number of indicators, such as school performance, do not consider other salient factors like family income, the parents' level of education, and the effects of having two parents rather than one. My um, more nuanced analysis shows that what is beneficial for children's development is not whether their parents are legally married, but whether they want to stay together and whether they are in a stable family situation. Second, those who argue that marriage creates stability tend to conflate correlation and causation, since people who voluntarily choose marriage may already hold commitment as a value. Even if those two qualities tend to go hand in hand, a couple's legal recognition as married makes no guarantee that value will be instilled. As Claire Chambers observes, the, the first same-sex couple to marry in Dallas successfully cohabitated for 55 years before getting married. On the other hand, the actor Nicolas Cage was only married to his fourth wife for four days before filing for divorce. Although these are extreme examples, Chambers' point is that the act of getting married makes no guarantee that a couple's values suddenly become oriented towards maintaining that union. Despite the legal benefits associated with marriage and the economic ramifications of divorce, nearly 50% of marriages end in divorce. 
Of course, the statistic does not prove that state recognized marriage creates unstable relationships either. But rather, there is nothing about marriage that intrinsically causes people to become more committed to a stable family life. As well, treating the legal recognition of caring relationships or marriage as a proxy for preventing family breakdown is hardly a comprehensive solution. But what I am saying is that because the state has a vested interest in maintaining stable caring relationships and often takes the brunt when these relationships break down, they are justified in privileging committed long-term relationships. According to Rawls, um, family life is a both public and private concern, and the state's duty to protect the law justifies their intervention in family life when questions of justice arise, such as domestic or child abuse. Additionally, one does not choose whether they are born into a family, so everyone has a stake in the state's treatment of families and how it regulates justice within that space. I owe much to Elizabeth Brake for this argument, but we may also consider care as one of Rawls's primary goods. Primary goods are considered an essential precondition for individuals to pursue their own diverse goals. In this context, Brake is referring to both psychological and physical care, which extends to both adult relationships and child-parent relationships. Although the distribution of psychological care is not epistemically accessible, the state can promote caring relationships by lowering the barrier of entry from the rigid ideal of sexually monogamous um, coupledom. Ultimately, there is a need for reforming marital institutions because less people are subscribing to that ideal. In 2005, 51% of women of marrying age were living without a spouse. And in 2010, they became the minority. We can attribute this number to family breakdown but also an increasing number of young people who are simply choosing not to get married. This cultural shift demands a recognition of new forms of committed relationships, which promote stability and sustained care. Moving forward, I want to consider pragmatic restrictions of this alternative to state-recognized marriage, and such as like how many members should we restrict to this union with or without children, while still enabling personal liberty. Thank you very much for listening. And so without further ado, we will move into our last presentation of the day, which is going to be presented by Radish, and it's titled Towards a Professionist Account of Human Rights. So Radish, Amarasikere, uh, pronounced he and him, is an undergraduate philosopher working primarily on moral philosophy, political philosophy, and the many intersections of these fields. Substantially influenced by both Kant and Aristotle, he is particularly interested in dignity, flourishing, and the good life. Radish's moral and political work has been published in various undergraduate journals, including Critique, Duke Medical Ethics Journal, and Polis. He is also an editor for the university's own Noesis. Outside of philosophy, Radish enjoys hiking, playing the guitar, and a good cup of tea. Now I'll turn it over to Radish. Uh, Cheryl, thank you so much for that lovely introduction. Uh, thank you, especially to the center for having me. I'm very excited. Um, as the title of my talk suggests, today I will hopefully be moving us towards a perfectionist account of human rights. Uh, human rights hold a very special status in modern Western liberal democracies, 
on one hand, they represent a collective commitment to the dignity, welfare, and personhood of our fellow persons. Uh, but on the other hand, they are often met with a lot of philosophical skepticism. There are a lot of questions about how you ground and justify these sort of esoteric aloof rights that don't really resemble other rights we have in popular society. Jeremy Bentham once said that natural human rights are nothing more than nonsense on stilts. So naturally we have our work cut out for us. Uh, as I mentioned, I will be moving us towards a perfectionist account. I do want to explain why a perfectionist account is especially helpful at buttressing some of the skepticism. But to do that, I think it's first helpful for me to explain what perfectionism really is. So perfectionism is a moral, political, and occasionally legal theory that orients individuals and community with their flourishing. Flourishing is a core concept in ancient Greek philosophy and central in perfectionism, uh, the details of which we'll sketch momentarily, but generally we hold as conducive with happiness or welfare. Uh, perfectionist commentators categorize flourishing or this proverbial good life in a distinctive way, usually in terms of some kind of distinct human capacity or a set of objective goods, and argues in turn that the good life cultivates these properties or distinct traits to a high degree. Why is this helpful in addressing some of the skepticism? Perfectionism is a very common sense moral theory. It orients agents with living a good life at a very fundamental level. It doesn't concern itself too much with highly theoretical arguments and really just looks at what it means to be a happy person who's doing well for themselves. So I think that by orienting human rights with really fundamental things like the ultimate goal of human life or just what it means to be a person of a certain kind, human rights in this sense is very uh, belly to the earth. And I think this is a helpful way of going about things. So as I mentioned, one of the things we need to do is sketch out the details of what flourishing consists in. Uh, a very easy way perfectionist commentators have done this is by pointing to the so-called good things in life. Perfectionist commentators, though diversely and broadly going about this, will often point to things like moral virtue, friendship, knowledge, achievement, pleasure, as these sort of inherently, intrinsically desirable goods. Uh, you don't really need to justify them in any traditional sense, except for the fact that having things like friendship makes your life good. Being morally virtuous makes us happy. Achieving things is conducive to our flourishing. These are really simple commitments and, uh, you know, we need not trouble ourselves with their justification. But personally, I don't think that the objective goods picture, you know, captures everything. I think there's a degree to which we have to dive a little deeper than that. Fundamentally, when I speak of something like moral virtue, that's inherently bound up with my moral agency. It's bound up with the kind of person I want to be. When I speak of friendship, I don't just speak of friends, I speak of my friends. When I speak of knowledge, it's not so much that just knowledge that's been programmed into me or if a specific mode of thinking has been imposed on me, it's not the same as knowledge which I've acquired autonomously that teaches me about my place in the broader world. So in an important sense, it's not just enough that we have the objective goods, 
we need our normative agency. We need to have the capacity to uh, exercise our practical reason and set our own ends. My supervisor, Arthur Ripstein, who I worked with um, for this project, once joked that the sort of objective goods picture on its own is a lot like a Norwegian prison where you're comfortably given everything you might need, but really you don't have any sense of autonomy. And that does not really seem congruent with our intuitions about the good life. So let's hold then that true flourishing is cultivating objective goods in accordance with our normative autonomy. So now there's a problem. Flourishing is complex. And generally, the things I've mentioned are necessary conditions for flourishing. That's a fancy way of saying in their absence, a person will not flourish. But thinkers as early as Aristotle have realized that they are not always sufficient. In other words, there are other things that are necessary in order for us to flourish. Aristotle in particular talks about things like education, uh, good family life, social status, and so on. And hopefully you can see where the need for rights starts to come in. So let's start to develop what I would call my two arguments for rights. I'm going to argue first for what we call basic subsistence rights, and then what we might call personhood rights. Uh, the former is a lot easier to argue for than the latter. Um, but we will cross that bridge when we get to it. So as we know, the logic has been laid out. Perfectionist commentators hold that flourishing consists in cultivating objective goods in accordance with normative autonomy. But fundamentally, before we can even begin to do that, we need our basic entitlements met. We need food, water, shelter. I'm hesitant to say healthcare um, because really healthcare hasn't been all too great for the last 4,000 years of human history, but people have still flourished. Um, so I really wanna keep it at the bare essentials, things that are necessary for us to live and therefore happiness or flourishing is only possible in the presence of these rights and therefore perfectionist commentators can ground their conception of rights in the needs necessary for us to flourish. This argument may not seem particularly controversial or revolutionary. I hope it's not. Uh, really what I'm hoping to do here is orient a lot of our kind of common intuitions about rights with a very practical moral theory. But anyway, let's move on to the second argument. This one is a little bit more complex as I've emphasized throughout my discussion that normative autonomy is a crucial, crucial part of our flourishing. There's a Robert Nozick quote I really like uh, where he simply says, we want to be a certain kind of person. We want to be who we want to be. And that really encapsulates what I've been getting at. But to do that, we need to have certain entitlements to things like free expression, free thought. As James has just discussed, we need things like entitlements and freedoms to our gender identities. Uh, and this is particularly salient given how much rights in this regard are often under regard. LGBTQ communities, minorities, women, really anyone who does not hold substantial social power often has their autonomous normative rights under attack. So again, perfectionist commentators, and as I've argued, have the logic laid out and allow them to ground their conception in this idea. We begin again with this conception where we want to be a certain kind of person and only when we can be that person can we flourish. Therefore, we can ground our rights in that conception as conducive with happiness. Now, let's treat a potential objection. And surprisingly enough, this objection actually comes from perfectionists themselves, not even the skeptics. So I suppose I really don't have too many people on my team for this one. Uh, but the objection really holds that freedom is not always a great thing. And this is a tricky one. Um, 
thinkers like John Finnis in the modern era and St. Thomas Aquinas in the classical era have generally argued that freedom sometimes allows us to go astray. And because perfectionism is a theory that holds there is an objective good flourishing, which we ought to aim at, normative moral ought, anything that sometimes gets in the way of that may not be a good thing. So freedom sometimes allows us to do immoral things. It allows us to make the wrong friends and so on. You can probably think of lots of examples of this. So I wasn't sure how to treat this objection initially. Uh, on one hand, I'm tempted to concede it. On one hand, it's important to acknowledge that freedom in excess sometimes violates rights. And really, we need to set constraints and limitations on what people can do in order to make sure they're not really harming themselves and certainly not harming others. But again, this uh, uh, often results in a counter objection that that's paternalistic. So I don't really have a as concrete reply or rebuttal for this objection. Rather, I want to open the question to the listeners and ask you to consider fundamentally what's more important. We either have a picture where freedom is paramount, allowing us to make those mistakes uh, and exercise our autonomy, even if it's not always conducive to our own flourishing, or we can paint a picture that's a little bit more limited. Again, I have chosen to paint a picture that promotes freedom, because I believe we can have a criterion of rightness promoting flourishing that necessarily does not need to be conflated with a decision procedure where we can exercise freedom at the risk of making mistakes. Um, as far as going forward goes, I suppose perfectionist commentators and myself would really have to iron out the relationship between flourishing and freedom in great detail. It's a big question, and I think it warrants more than a 10-minute talk. Unfortunately, we don't have time to touch upon everything. That is all I have for you today. Uh, just very briefly, I do want to take a moment to thank um, Professor Arthur Ripstein. He was an exceptional supervisor. Uh, it doesn't hurt that he's such a great philosopher, so if you do have a chance to work with him, I recommend it. And I'm also very grateful to the many, many people who read many drafts of this paper and gave me very helpful feedback. Um, thank you for your time. I appreciate the opportunity. All right, so that marks the end of the last panel and thus the uh, end of uh, the Center for Ethics undergraduate conference for 2022. Um, and although I would, I'm very interested in ending this conference by breaking into song and singing happy birthday to Radish, uh, the Center for Ethics probably won't be too happy with me if I did that. So I'll end with uh, just a few thank yous. So first I just wanna say thank you to all the presenters, these undergraduate researchers, uh, for taking time out of what I expect is a very busy, busy schedule to come present their research to us. Uh, I also want to say thank you to the viewers. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and watch this live. Now, of course, if you're interested, this video will be uh, recorded. It is recorded and it will be posted on YouTube, so you can watch it on your own time afterwards. And if you're at any point, if you're very interested in anyone's research project, um, every presenter's research project will be published on the Center for Ethics's online journal, uh, which is very exciting. So uh, with that, uh, I'm going to say bye now to our YouTube